Welcome to the Cook Cody Podcast. I'm Marie, and in today's episode, I have a chat with Laura, by the way, about why we're still active members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, even though we've both experienced narcissistic abuse by members of the church. Laura is a certified life coach specializing in helping people affected by narcissistic abuse design and create an amazing life. After years of emotional abuse, her clients undo their survival patterns to unveil their true selves, plus more wealth, healthy relationships, peace and love along the way. Saying no, setting boundaries and learning to love yourself is just the beginning. Laura resides in Houston, Texas with her husband and three adorable kids. Enjoy! Hey everyone, welcome to the Cook Coterie Podcast. I'm so grateful and excited to have this conversation with an amazing friend. I consider her my friend and almost like a sister. I feel like we have so much in common. We have Laura, by the way, joining us today. How are you, Laura? Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Yes, agreed. We are 100% soul sisters in everything we've experienced and I love it. We're absolutely friends and I'm so so honored to be on here. Yeah, it's interesting how like as I've been on my healing journey, the type of people that I've been able to manifest and attract into my life. And I'm really, really grateful that you're in my life. Real quick, could you share with listeners a little bit about you and how you learned about narcissism? Absolutely. So like you said, my name is Laura, by the way, that's my actual last name, which is so fun. And if you are listening to this and you are in the LDS church, yes, I am related to John. We are sixth cousins once removed. (laughs) I get that question a lot. We are actually related um, by marriage and I've never actually met him. So if there are people listening who have been in his Book of Mormon class at BYU or something, you actually know him better than I do. So anyway, now that's out of the way. So I, I grew up in Louisiana. I currently live in Texas. I am a member of the church and I am the post-narc life coach. So I help people who have survived narcissistic abuse to create the life of their dreams. So anyone who's had any sort of narcissist relationship, being raised by one, surviving a marriage, you know, even boss-employee relationships, because narcissists are literally everywhere, and it's really hard to avoid them. And in order to survive the narcissist, you have to adapt um, in a lot of ways that are self, um, self-deprecating. So we get all of that conditioning out of the way so that you can create the life that you want, like a life of peace and success and I, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, I work with parents, people breaking the cycle for their for their family, lots of lots of people who've been through it. And I was raised by narcissist parents and the narcissist story goes back in my family multiple generations on both sides. So we've got alcoholism and suicide and we've also got just like a general sense of emotional unavailability, sexual abuse back in the 30s and 40s you name it, it's probably in my family. And at the same time, these people are incredible people too. They've done amazing things. They've continued to have children and have families. They've joined the church. They've uh, changed their careers. They've done the best they could to raise healthy, uh, productive children, but a lot of the narcissist abuse still got through. And so I've just made it my life's mission to help other people who have been through things like me and much worse to help them overcome and break the cycles for their families, create an amazing legacy that they can leave behind that's full of love and healthy relationships, you know, and come to a place of peace and love for themselves and for their family members, if that's what they want, that is available. But not everyone wants that, and that's okay, too. And so, yeah, that's kind of what I do. <laughs> that's what I am, What I, who I am, yeah. It's incredible what you do. I mean... The fact that you are an active Latter-day Saint really speaks volumes to who you are. And something that we've talked about in private is finding a space for people like us. You know, because yeah. I think I've mentioned to you before, when I first started joining recovery support groups um, for survivors of narcissistic abuse, and, and I have found a couple for LDS people mm-hmm. as well, but... I remember the first groups I would join, like, 
some of them are just very, very negative. It's all about bashing the narcissist and criticizing them. And yep. I feel like venting, you know, is needed at times. But absolutely, yeah. But over time, it wasn't healthy for me. And I appreciate you sharing about your family and how they've also done good as well. And that's the thing too that abusers aren't abusive all the time. Right. They are capable of doing good as well. And so being able to accept them as a package and seeing them for who they really are with our eyes wide open really does help with the healing and recovery process because we're not trying to hide or sugarcoat anything. We're really just seeing them for who they are with their flaws, their abuse, and also the good things they've done in, in our families. Yes. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on how the gospel has, has shaped your family dynamic over those several generations that you mentioned. Yeah, so the gospel has an interesting story in my family. So on my dad's side, the church did not show up until my dad's generation. He became a convert to the gospel at the age of 35 before... You know, he ever met my mom or had any children whatsoever. So he was 35 years old, my age right now, before he even knew what the Book of Mormon was, what, if he knew what the gospel was, all that stuff. And that was, in my opinion, such a miraculous moment because when he heard the message of the gospel, it wasn't, it didn't click for him right away. But when he read the Book of Mormon, because he was raised Catholic, and when you're Catholic, you don't change religion. That's just not a thing. <laughs> You're like Catholic forever. Like my grandmother still believed that my dad was Catholic regardless of the choices that he made. But that's nothing under there. And I love the Catholic Church and I love people who are Catholic. I love my family that comes from that tradition. But when he read the Book of Mormon and he actually sat down and he prayed about it, he actually received a powerful spiritual manifestation, a spiritual experience that showed him the truth that he had been searching for. He didn't even realize he was searching for his entire life. And it changed everything for him. And my mom, on her side, we actually have uh, ancestors that joined the church back at, I think, in the early 1900s, maybe the, the 10s or the 20s. And then those converts were endowed. They received their endowments in the Mesa, Arizona temple. So they had to travel a long way. So my family was in Alabama, Mississippi at the time, and they had to travel all the way to Arizona to receive their endowments. They received patriarchal blessings. Um, they raised their children in the gospel, and my particular branch of the family fell away. And my mom had no idea what the gospel was. And her mom had no idea what the gospel was. And her mom, my great-grandmother, kind of knew what it was. She was married to her husband, who had been raised in the church, but he was already inactive and was not interested in the church by the time he met my great-grandmother. And so when my mom heard the message of the missionaries at her door, it was a really powerful experience for her. She felt like, like she was coming home. And she didn't know why she felt that, but she felt this, this amazing sensation of recognition. Like, I, I know this. Why do I know this? This is familiar to me. So they both were technically converts to the church, and as a result, they met each other at a singles conference down in New Orleans. And it was, you know, love at first sight for both of them, which... I think is fascinating because my mom, bless her heart, absolutely had some strong narcissist tendencies being raised by an alcoholic. And my dad had strong narcissist tendencies being raised by a woman who did the best she could, but was definitely very emotionally unavailable and abusive towards him. And so when they met, it was like sparks flew. It was game over. Like in, in, in my line of work, I call it the narc spark. Because when you meet someone who is emotionally dangerous, your body has this big sensation to it. And a lot of times we interpret that to mean that it's love, that it's attraction. It's like this a magical experience when in reality, it's just your body going into fight or flight and telling you that you're not safe anyway. But they both had that experience about each other and were married, I think within a few months, I think they met in July and were married by November, married in the temple. Um, really great experience there. My mom's marriage, this was her third marriage. 
and my dad, this was his first. And so they really tried to make it work. They, I have this amazing artifact. It's not really the right word because that has an ancient connotation. But I have this, um, this calendar that my mom had in, for the year 1986, which is the year I was born. And that's how they tracked all of their family comings and goings. And in this calendar, you could see, you know, how many weeks it was until I was going to be born. You could see the meals. You could see, you know, grocery lists, phone numbers for random people. Because this was the 80s. There was no iPhones. There was no Palm Pilots, nothing to keep track of things electronically. And everywhere, every month there was something like send the missionaries a meal, teach Relief Society lesson, you know, take the elders quorum members to this thing, you know, visiting teaching assignments, home teaching assignments. It was just the coolest thing to see the snapshot of their life as members of the church trying to live the gospel the very best they could, having the faith to increase their family, having more children. My mom was pregnant with me at the time. They went on to have another child, my little sister, and really trying to make this beautiful ideal of the gospel, the marriage in the temple, the eternal family work here on earth on top of having everything they brought to the table, all of the narcissist abuse, the, you know, the, the tendencies they both had, the, the struggles they came to the table with. And, it, and it, it, tragically, they weren't able to obviously make that relationship work. They uh, were divorced within five years, and it was really violent, and it was really a bad thing for both of them, ultimately. But just seeing that snapshot of that calendar is so, like such a treasure to me. I, I look at that, and I'm just like... Ugh, I want to cry thinking about it because it's such a beautiful, beautiful gift that they they wanted to create for themselves and for their families. Ultimately, they weren't able to. But like you said, I can see the full reality of it, the good, the bad, all the in-between. And it's such a gift to be able to see that, hey, they put that effort in. They made a lot of sacrifices. And I enjoy the benefits of those sacrifices to this day. So even though it didn't work out, even though a lot of their narcissist tendencies and all the abusive things came through, I still enjoy some amazing blessings because of the choices they made and the sacrifices they made during those years. I'm happily married to a man in the, uh, we are sealed in the temple obviously as well. And we have this wonderful family, three beautiful kids. It's a healthy marriage. I get to enjoy the blessings that my parents laid the foundation for, even though they weren't truly able to enjoy those for themselves. I was given an education in the gospel, an education in life. I was able to go to BYU. I was able to surround myself with really healthy people. That's how I found out that I was dealing with narcissist abuse. Because when I went to BYU, I suddenly was around more healthy people. Because when you're in Louisiana, bless our hearts, it's kind of a cultural thing in New Orleans and in the South in general. There's a lot of narcissist tendencies just in like the cultural aspect of living there. And so when I was living out in Utah, it was like whoa, everyone's different and I don't know why. And I didn't know how to like articulate it or understand it, but for sure things were different. And not to say that everyone in Utah is perfect. Of course, there's going to be narcissists in Utah and that's fine. But generally speaking, it was not the pervasive culture that I was used to. And I learned so much and I changed so much and I was able to see what I was dealing with. And for many years, I was in that angry place. Like, you know, those groups are there for a reason. They really are uh, they really are necessary sometimes to really just get all of that out, really process the anger, the grief, the frustration. And I did, I, I don't know, I, there weren't a lot of Facebook groups during that time, but I, I remember feeling the way that they, they, they are feeling now in those groups. Definitely processing a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness. And I was not in a place of you know, being grateful or being feeling forgiveness or any of those things. I was definitely in the better place. And I, I passed through that for many years before I had really any tools at my disposal. And then I slowly started finding the tools and healing. And this was at the same time trying to create a healthy relationship for myself, which was very difficult because I had my own narcissist tendencies to contend with. And I didn't know that I was so emotionally immature and unavailable in certain ways. But Thankfully, my husband is an emotionally mature person, generally speaking, and he didn't put up with any of my garbage. And I learned purely by example so many things about how I help other people today. So, yeah, the gospel has been the constant in my life. Even though my parents were divorced, 
I went to the same church, even though we lived in different homes. I went to church with my mom and I went to church with my dad. Huge, huge foundational piece for me. Also listening to the prophets, reading the scriptures, um, being around people who have a gospel minded, gospel minded intentions just was a healing balm for me when I was hurting and I didn't know why I was hurting. I didn't even know I was allowed to hurt. Those were feelings I didn't even know how to articulate, understand, or make sense of. And the gospel was absolutely a balm of healing for me. I could go to church, I could read my scriptures, I could be at girls camp, I could be in young women's and I would feel the love of God, even though I didn't quite understand it, but I would feel a sense of safety and security in, in the gospel. And it has just continued to serve me to this day. Um, that's a long answer to your question, but <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. I, I really appreciate you talking about the consistency of the church and the gospel in your life. And I think mm-hmm. with a lot of us who have experienced narcissistic abuse, we're so used to instability. And, and I can relate to that where it was like so chaotic at home. And so I love going to church. I love going to seminary and being with my friends who accepted me and loved me for me. And my only job was to be myself because I had to go home and pretend to be someone else and comply yes. and be inauthentic to survive. Yep. And so going to church was my safe place. And it's been really interesting as I have become more public with my story and growing up in the church with a narcissistic mother. People are like, well, why do you want to be a part of a church where they're narcissists? And I'm like, they're narcissists everywhere. <laughs> yeah, like you cannot escape them. <laughs> exactly. And like, it's not necessarily the church's fault that no. they're narcissists in congregations and church leaders leadership positions and I don't want to stop living the gospel just because I was hurt by someone who is a part of that as well. Exactly. I mean, narcissists will use any tools at their disposal to hurt the people around them to get their emotional needs met. So yeah, if you're in the church, the narcissist will use a lot of the church things to get what it is that they want. They'll they'll use things, they'll use forgiveness against you, gratitude against you. They'll use the love of God against you. They'll withdraw loving things about the church from you. They'll make you believe that other people around you are judging you. They're going to judge other people. I mean, it's just, it's a chaotic whirlwind of things that don't make sense, especially when you're a child. It's hard to surgically separate, okay, this is what my mom is thinking, feeling, and doing with regards to the gospel, and this is the gospel over here, and these two are not necessarily related. But yeah, when if, if someone picks up, you know, a baseball bat and starts beating you with it, you're not going to like baseball. And so it makes sense that a lot of people are like leaving the church or have really hard feelings about the church because they feel like it's been used as a stick to beat them up. And, and that's just, that's a hard thing to deal with. So I totally empathize. I'm glad you mentioned, you know, separating the gospel from the narcissistic person. And in this case, we're talking about narcissistic parents in the church. And something that has helped me as well is to separate my earthly parents, the family that I was born into, and separating them from my heavenly parents as well. That has been really, really powerful and helpful for me in my recovery process because for so long, that phrase, like, honor thy father and mother, like, if I don't help you, the sin is upon my head. Scriptures like that were used against me all the time. Yes. And it made me resentful. It made me really resent God. And I was so confused. Like, I didn't understand why I had friends who were in such loving, happy Christ-centered homes, but that wasn't my experience. And it made me feel like there was something wrong with me, that how come I wasn't good enough or worthy to be able to, to be born into a family like that. And separating that, separating my worth from my environment really helped me. Because at the end of the day, it's like I don't 
I don't have control over my parents. I don't have control over the home that I grew up in. But as an adult, I now have that responsibility to change, to heal, and I can be different from them. Absolutely. And it's been it's been amazing. Like just just that realization, I can be different from them, and I'm not a bad person if I want to separate from them. Like has been right. has been just incredible and. Yeah, like I said, it's it's been interesting, like trying to find a place in the church for someone like me, because it's like they want you to like pick a lane. Oh, you were abused by a church member, like you should leave the church. And I'm like, right. no, I don't want to. Like, let me stay and be my own kind of member. Exactly. Yes, I love I love that because, and then on, on the flip side, you get people who are just like you need to forgive your mom and you need to think wonderful things about your mom and you need to, and when people say forgive, they mean reconcile and have that bonded relationship with them, which is just not available for people like us. They aren't available for that kind of reconciliation. They don't, they don't have the ability or maybe they're unwilling to take any responsibility for anything they've said they're done. They're unwilling to think about how it may have hurt you know, you or, or the persons that they've hurt. And, and when you have that situation, just reconciliation is just not available. Now you can forgive someone. And I, and this is one of the things that really, when, when I, when I saw your post in that group that we were in, I was just like, I have found my people. Like, you don't know how rare you are. When you said that post, I think it was like a text message conversation between you and her or something, or someone, a family member who was just like, come on, please just make it work. Just like, make it work with mom, stop being selfish, stop being prideful, right? Like selfish and prideful are one of those keywords that are used against us. It's fine. And, and, and just reconcile with mom, like, you know, what, what's wrong with you type thing. And you're like, no, no, you understand. Like I, I have forgiven. I'm in a really beautiful place. Reconciliation and forgiveness are not the same thing. Anyway, I just, I loved that. I bet you could speak to that really, really well. And I think being a member of the church and, having the understanding we have of eternal families, it's going to look different than other people and their experience of their families and, and the idea of having an eternal family with them. So for me, for example, I, I, I don't know for sure how things are going to look on the other side. That's the whole point of faith, right? But what I do glom onto is Elder Holland's quote about people who have had to deal with disability in their lives and that they will be breathtakingly glorious and healed at another time. And I see narcissism, and I don't know if anyone else agrees with me necessarily, I don't have to, but I see narcissism as a form of disability. And even though it involves a lot of the agency of the person, I really do think your brain changes when you have to survive abuse. And it feels like a disability to me. I'm not saying that they are disabled, but it's it's an analogy of disability. And I believe that one day that weight of narcissism will be lifted from their minds and they will be able to see and understand and have the empathy and, and see what we think and feel. And that could be just a fantasy of mine, but I just, I love that quote, Elder Holland. And I believe that one day when I look into the eyes of my mother, there will be a knowing there that has never been there. And there will be that opportunity for a, a healing of a relationship. And maybe there won't be. And if that's the case, that's fine. I've made peace with that too. But I just, I love thinking about that and how there's so much work to be done on the other side to create the eternal families that that are, are trying to be created here on earth. And I don't know what that means in terms of, because my mom's been married like five different times and my dad's been married like four different times. So who knows like how it's going to end up in terms of family togetherness. But at the end of the day, eternal families are not about, you know, a, a set of parents living with their children. You know, it's about pairs of people who are connected to each other. And I, I, I think, of course, I want my mom and my dad to experience celestial glory and exaltation and salvation and all of the gifts that the Savior has prepared for all of us, if that's what they choose. And if they choose not to, that's their choice too. And I can choose to love them either way and continue to build my eternal family. And I just trust that the Lord's going to take care of it. But I will not be pressured by other members of the church or anyone really to change 
my feelings about members of my family so that they can feel like my family looks a certain way in the eternities. Like, it's just not necessary. You know, it's not about making someone else feel safer or better. It's about accepting reality and working within it and managing our own emotions in response to that. I mean, going back to the image of like a perfect family or what a family is supposed to look like, it just makes me feel like sometimes people forget that the Savior's atonement doesn't just work in this life. Right. It's infinite. And just because I don't want reconciliation in this life doesn't mean I'm not open to it in the next life or after I pass away or like in the millennium. I don't know. Like, I don't know like how it's going to work, but, but I know that the Savior's atonement works for all these different points in time. And and from my understanding of God, that he is limitless and all powerful. I feel like we're limiting him when we're like trying to force people to fix things right now. Uh, yeah, I love that. And, and I kinda, agree 100%. And, and like putting him in a box, like, well, you have to like use his atonement right now. You have to do this right now. And it's like, no, I don't have to. And the plan of salvation is clear that even in the next life, we will have opportunities to change and to repent. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. Did you have yeah, any when, thoughts on that? Yeah, it just reminds me of when I was a missionary. It was this sense of like, okay, we need to share the gospel with as many people as possible. And I had this, I think I had a a companion or two who had a lot of anxiety about this. Where like, if this person in front of me does not accept the gospel now, they will miss their opportunity and everything is lost for them. And I'm like, what? (laughs) That's crazy. Like the the first time a person like hears the gospel message is their only chance ever to accept it. And now they've like, totally lost it like there's just no way they can fully understand what they're rejecting when a 19 year old is trying to teach them you know about joseph smith like there's just the fact that missionary work works at all to me is proof that god is real and exists and that the church is true because a bunch of 18 19 year old teenagers are out sharing the gospel and somehow people get baptized like that's 100 percent the spirit anyway that's a tangent neither here nor there but i remember thinking as a missionary like there will be as many opportunities, I mean, obviously it's up to the Lord, but I, I just don't think this is the only chance for them. And it's just like our family. I, I really think this this is not the only chance for them to have a shot at eternal life. Why do we have temple work? Because, so for example, I, I try to go to the temple regularly. It's such a healing experience for me to go. And I've been doing a lot of family history work to get those names through as much as I can. And I've had so many spiritual experiences in the temple about my family members. And I know for a fact that they are working on themselves on the other side. I really, truly believe that, that they are watching us. They are learning from us. They are doing the best they can to change and to grow and accept and receive the gospel. And because we do their ordinances here on earth, they're able to have the same blessings that we have, the same ones that we have from our choices to do the temple work for ourselves, right? And maybe some of them won't necessarily do that work. We all we also have our agency, but at least the ordinances are there in case they do decide that's the, the direction I want to go. And that's how I feel about the work that you and I are doing in the world. Like, I'm going to do the work to heal myself, to build what it looks like to have appropriate boundaries and appropriate healthy relationships with our spouses and our children. And they get to learn from that as much as they can if they want to. And I've got this structure in place for in the next life when the time comes, if they want to have that healthy relationship with me, it's ready. But if they don't, they don't have to. It's not, I'm not going to try to force it to happen, you know, but I think it's available. Yeah. yeah, and I love that. The possibility is there, and, yeah. it, and it is available, right? And that's usually what I say when people are like, give your mother another chance. That chance actually isn't given by me. It's given by God. 
Exactly. And she has to be the one to take the steps to change. I can't do that. That reminds me, going back to what you said earlier about having um, a relationship with God that it really is parent-child. I went to the exact same thing. I was like, I, 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 I somehow realized, okay, my mom and dad are not my parents anymore. I mean, yes, they're my parents. What I mean to say is they're not in charge of parenting me anymore. And I now have the opportunity to be parented by my father in heaven and allow him to teach me and him to help me grow and him to love me unconditionally, him to show me what that's like. That for me as well was pivotal in my ability to heal. It changed everything for me. I remember the day that that switch happened for me. It was just so powerful. And it showed me, oh, that's right. We're all on the same playing field. Like even though my mom and dad brought me into this world, we're on the same level, all of us. We're all brothers and sisters. And my Heavenly Father loves and parents them in the same way he loves and parents me. And they have a path on this earth. They have, you know, their trials that they've been given. I have my path and my trials. And I know that the Lord will take care of them just like he's taking care of me, whatever that looks like. It might look very different. And my job is when I am ready to love them unconditionally, because that is the most healing thing for me. Because loving someone unconditionally is not necessarily about them. It's not about making them feel better. It's not about healing them. It's about healing yourself. And that's what's true about forgiveness too. When you forgive someone, it's not about making them feel absolved of guilt. Forgiving someone is about healing yourself from any of the hurt, the bitterness, the anger, the frustration, the demand for justice. All of that is released so that you can continue on with your life and continue to create peaceful things. And so absolutely, I... 100% 100% agree with you on that. Like, it's 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 up to the Lord how how they're being dealt with. Yeah, definitely. And my new favorite quote, I need to make a post about it, but I've been saying lately, I'm not the savior of my family. Jesus Christ is. Amen. And I, I really believe that. And I feel like it's unfair and cruel when other people who don't know our family situations are trying to put the heat on us and be like hey you're the one who broke away or hey you're the one who is saying that your parents or a family member is mistreating you or being abusive so you have to fix it because you're the one who called it out right and that's very dangerous because you are inviting a victim to associate with their abuser and try to help the abuser when really we need to be focusing on helping the person that they hurt. I mean, the church has like disciplinary councils and things like that where they like try to help perpetrators and abusers. But I just feel like as members of the church, we also need to pay attention to how we treat people who have been abused and how we can show them Christ-like love without shaming them or judging them for how they're handling the situation with their abuser. Yes, agreed. I think what tends to cause that, right, is a person who sees this happening, they get uncomfortable. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is outside of my worldview. This makes me feel like unsafe what's happening here. And they're motivated by that feeling to change you so that you fix it. You make things right so that they can feel better and safe and like everything is going to be okay. And once I've really been able to see, oh, this is not about whether or not I should be doing something and whether or not I'm in the wrong. This is about somebody else needing me to do something to feel better to feel like they're safe. And once I saw that, it was really easy for me to let go of all of that pressure that they put on victims to make things right and and to change things. And, and, and yes, I think it's really important to let them know, Hey, just so you know, you're putting, you're making the victim do double the work. They have to both survive the situation and they've got to like do all of the, (laughs) do all the work to, to fix it, to make things right. And I've also seen on the other side of that. I've seen people 
being highly accusatory of people who may or may not have been abusive. I mean, I don't know. I'm not judge. I don't know that I was necessarily there. But sometimes people will get in that state of mind where everyone is abusing them. They are victims and they want to be on the attack. They want to be uh, want to bring people down and, and change the narrative of what's happening. And listen, do what you got to do when you're when you're suffering, when you're struggling, when you're trying to process out heavy emotions and make sense of what has happened to you, do what you got to do. It's not my job to judge how you deal with that. Um, but if you are seeing that and you don't believe the victim and you think that they are inappropriately accusing the person, why is that making you uncomfortable? Like really look inside yourself. What's happening in your own emotional state of mind that this is not going to work for you? Are you triggered? Are you feeling unsafe? Are you feeling like this person is going to come after you or something, you know, really take a look at that because even if that person is falsely accusing, because I think that's kind of the risk a lot of people, you know, are afraid of, even if that were true, at the end of the day, the Lord is the judge and he's going, he knows the truth. He sees what's happening. And if you can rely on the spirit and focus on your own healing and your own self, you can release the need to control the situation. I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned in life in general is controlling the situation to make me feel safe is just not necessary. Like allow people to judge, allow people to make accusations, allow people to feel uncomfortable, allow people to process the abuse they've experienced. And you don't need to control anything about that. I think a lot of people are afraid of how that will look on the church and they feel like they need to defend the church and prevent people from leaving the church. And it's like, that is not your job. (laughs) Like people are going to leave. It's fine. Like let them leave, you know, and and bless them on their way out. Like it's sometimes people got to leave in order to process a lot of big emotions, a lot of make a lot of sense of what's happened to them. Okay. The Lord still loves them. They are still lovable. They are still worthy. They are still worth all of the worth in the universe by virtue of existing. And so they've got to sort some things out. That's fine. You don't have to, like the church is going to survive no matter what. The Lord has established the church on the earth and he knows what he's doing. He is the head of the church. Even if all of the people underneath him are making terrible mistakes, the Lord's in charge. And so really just releasing control is a huge part of the healing journey in my opinion oh yeah definitely like letting go of the expectations that you have of other people that has been really helpful to me too and also developing that self-awareness how is my actions affecting other people and i mean i learned from coming from a narcissistic family where they all have good intentions like that's what I was taught growing up that I was (laughs) suffering because of good intentions that were that were executed poorly (laughs) yeah and it's like if you ask any parent ask any narcissistic parent do you love your children they will always say yes always they love their children Oh, yeah. My mom would be like, I love my children too much. I love my children to a fault. It's hurting me how much I love my children. <laughs> yeah, like, that's why I sacrificed for you. That's why I yes. did this. Like, that's why I like, stayed up all night, like, helping you with this school project and then making me feel guilty. I'm like, I'm sorry. I didn't ask you to stay up late. And right. So they all love us, right? For sure. But how many, how many of us feel love? Exactly. And I think that's part of letting that letting go of that control. We think that we are making someone feel loved, but if they don't feel loved, like are we really doing right by them or are we really doing what they need? Exactly. I think mm-hmm. the kind of love that you and I have experienced growing up is a counterfeit form of what real love is. And I believe that narcissists are just, they're not capable of true unconditional love or or unwilling. I don't really know for sure which one it is. I guess it depends on the person, but they're just not capable of having unconditional love because they're in so much emotional pain and deep emotional need. They're like 
buckets with holes in it that they're they cannot focus on loving the person in front of them as a person they can only see the person in front of them as a means to an end so even in the act of loving that child they have these high expectations of well because i love you you have to return the love to me so that i feel loved like i'm so grateful i have kids so that i can feel loved it's like whoa whoa, whoa no that's not that's not what real love is real love is absolutely unconditional and comes from a place of all of my needs are met or even if they aren't met I'm in charge of meeting them and it's not your job to meet my needs. And I get to like, it's a one way street with a parent child relationship. Like obviously you love your parent that that's there. That's present. But the unconditional love, the expectation needs to be, it's a one way street. So you love that child regardless of how they show up, regardless of whether or not they love you, however they perform in school, however they look in front of their peers, in front of your peers, there is no withdrawal of love. A lot of times narcissists will withdraw their love as a means to try to train you to do the things that they want you to do so that you appear a certain way, you meet their needs in a certain way. And if you fail to do that, they cease to love you. They take away their love. They isolate you. They abandon you. And that is never love. That it just, it wasn't in the, like there wasn't love to begin with, but because we don't understand or we weren't raised with what that really looks like, we leave the situation where we're like, okay, love looks like this, but it's, it's not true. Love isn't something that can be withdrawn or taken away. That's a counterfeit version. And it makes us, the, the result of that is that we grew up thinking that love is earned, that we have to pretend or act or perform in a certain way so that we get those needs met, when in reality, we've never gotten that need met. When you're raised by a narcissist parent, that need was never met. It's a gaping hole. And we go out into the world and suddenly find all these terrible, unhealthy relationships and we're confused and we're like, what is wrong? So we go out, we go out into the world thinking that that's what love is. But that's not what love is. Love is, what I like to describe true unconditional love is, it's a feeling that you have for the person in front of you that you feel love for them simply by virtue of the fact that they exist. They are precious because they're alive. And that love is so big I like to think of it as it fills the entire universe. It cannot be increased by what we say, think, feel, or do. And it also cannot be increased, or sorry, decreased with what we say, think, feel, or do. There's no way that we can earn it being better or mistake enough to make it go away. And a lot of people approach their relationship with God that way. They think, okay, God's going to stop loving me if I fail to read my scriptures or if I stop going to church. And it's just not true. The Heavenly Father's love for us is constant and fills the universe. Now, Heavenly Father does have boundaries. And if if we don't meet the standards for the boundaries, then yes, certain consequences must take place. But because of the Savior, we have every opportunity to meet those standards. And the only thing that keeps us from meeting those standards are the choices, or are, are, are what we want, are our choices. And anyway, so that kind of love is something I had to learn and it took years to understand that love to really like let it sink in because I I wasn't able to see anything outside of oh yeah for sure love is earned like for example for the first like two or three years of my my marriage kind of like what you were saying on your post I walked on eggshells I was unable to feel loved by my husband because I was terrified that the next thing I said or did or felt was going to make it so that he left me. I like just knew, I just felt it. He He's on the verge of leaving me at all times and I have to make sure everything's perfect so that he doesn't leave me. Because I just believed that love was easily taken away. And that's just, that, that was never love. That's something else. It's a counterfeit version. It's just, that's not real. And I've learned to settle in. It's It's really like, learning what true love is, is, is not like a revelation. At least for me, it wasn't, it's not like this, like massive, you know, thing descended upon me. It's more like a settling deeper into myself and into the peace and into the knowing, because it's already there. We don't see it. We don't feel it if we're raised by narcissists, but it is already there. And if you can just like relax into it, teach your brain that it's safe. Um, that's what, that, at least that was the experience for me. That was really powerful that we we are enough to be loved by God just as we are. Yep. And that 
emotionally healthy people, emotionally mature people are also able to offer that kind of love to us. Yes. And that and most mm-hmm. most importantly I would say besides the love of God is the ability, the skill to offer that love to ourselves first. Because at the end of the day, yes, you like you said, there are people who can offer that kind of love to us. They do exist. And I highly recommend finding as many people as possible as possible to around, surround yourself with. But as human beings, sometimes things get in the way and sometimes people fail at loving us unconditionally. And it's not a problem if we can love ourselves unconditionally no matter what and we can trust that God loves us unconditionally no matter what. And then you can deal with, let's say your husband's having a bad day or let's say, you know, your best friend betrays you out of nowhere or, you know, your, your bishop does this horrible thing. You never know. People are going to fail and it's not a problem. If you can learn how to love yourself unconditionally and trust in God's love for you, you have a, a beautiful sense of safety and security regardless. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for sharing that. I'm enough for me and going back to earlier what you said about how like it's not your child's job to love you. I mean, yep. when I first cut my mother out, the most common message I would get is, how would you feel if your son cut you out? Yeah. And it was supposed to offend me. And I'm right. like... Supposed to be shocking? I'm, like, yeah, oh, I'm this like, is horrible. Well, yeah. I mean, if I ever treated him the way my mother treated me, I hope to God that he would cut me out. Yeah. I, I hope that he would have the self-respect and self-love to cut me out. Amen. And then they just yes. like either crickets or they're like, well, like, I hope he never cuts you out. I'm like, okay, like, <laughs> not. I am planning on working on myself so I can be emotionally available to him. And his only job is to be a child. His job is not to love me. His job is not to validate me. I'm in charge of that. A- men so beautifully said and i could not agree with you more i think a lot of people freak out when this happens because they're just like oh my gosh i can't even handle the amount of grief that is happening that i can empathize with your mom she must be feeling so much loss right that makes them very uncomfortable and i agree 100 percent. if i were guilty of treating my kids in the narcissist way i would hope that they set boundaries with me and if they need to cut me off then so be it because like you said, it is not their job to validate me. It's not their job to keep me in their life so that I can feel better. It's my job to make me feel better. It's my job to validate myself. And I know, I know that even though I will continue to spend the rest of my life healing myself, working on these tools, being the best parent, loving them as unconditionally as possible, some things are going to get through. I just, I get, I know, and and I'm not going to, try to achieve perfection in this. I'm going to do my very best and go as far as I can, but I know that my kids are going to have to heal from some of the things that they deal with being raised by me. It's just reality. And my job isn't to be like, oh, this is not okay. Look at how much I've done to heal myself. You're, you know, you're wrong. No, my job is to be like, how can I help support you? You're right. I did do this. Let's look at the reality. And I'm not going to sit there and try to make him understand what I was feeling and thinking so that he forgives me. My job isn't to be like, well, you should be grateful anyways. No, I'm going to listen. I'm going to be a witness for his pain and suffering, even if it's not real. Because sometimes kids suffer. Like I, I, I have three children and they have a lot of perceived slights that were not intended, you know. And I love that I can give them the gift of witnessing their pain with them and not trying to convince them out of their pain, helping them process and get all of their thoughts out, whether they be irrational or no, whether they believe something about me that's true or not, it doesn't matter. They're in pain. That's what matters. And it's my job to help them process through that, not to make them think something about me so that I can feel secure in myself. If my kids grow up thinking that I'm a narcissist, all right, uh, let's deal with that. I'm curious, what makes you think that? You know, how did I create that for you? You know, what's the appropriate responsibility that I can take? How can I help you heal from this? What do you need from me? Do you need to set boundaries with me? Okay, then, that's fine. I Like, boundaries to me are the most beautiful gift you can give someone because you're telling them the truth about you. Boundaries are the truth. 
and you cannot love someone that you don't that you're not truthful with right that's not real love it's a it's a fake version of love if it's not true so if someone sets a boundary with me and says hey actually that's not going to work for me i am like oh this is amazing i get the truth and i get to love them for who they really are whereas narcissists can't do that narcissists see boundaries as rejection they see it as a means of you trying to control them which is just not true but they perceive it that way we can't control that you know and so they're going to um, reject or fight against or try to tear down your boundaries and that's not fun to deal with but my hope is that I will do my best to show up for them in whatever way they need and my job is to manage my own emotions there I think it's such a great gift to give to kids that is cycle breaking right there <laughs> just teaching yeah. teaching your children coping skills because we're not perfect, right? But we can show them a way that has helped us to be able to deal with our emotions. Yes. And that pain is natural. Pain can be your friend. A friend who's telling yes. you to pay attention to your body or that you need help or that you need to ask for help. I love that. And yes. And growing up with a narcissistic parent, you're taught that pain is bad. And you just want to like shove it aside, suppress it. Right. And and with my son as, as well, I mean, the other day, so I, I love to do deep breathing. That's something that helps me mm-hmm. calm down when I'm triggered. And he, I noticed he was getting frustrated. I think like a toy was stuck in his toy bin. He was trying to pull it out and he was getting frustrated. And he was like, like making these sounds. He was upset. And then I suddenly heard this. And I was like, did he just try to do like a, like a, like the deep breathing that I do because I love to breathe in through my nose and breathe mm-hmm. out with, with my mouth open, like a ha sound. Mm-hmm. And I like, it just, oh man, it was just so priceless. Amazing. That he was like, I mean, it wasn't a super deep breath, but he was trying <laughs> in his own way yeah. to deal with his frustration. That's because so Because he awesome. had seen it from me. He had seen how I would do that when I would get frustrated and yeah it's just it's just one of those things like you said just learning by example learning from other people and our children learn from us you know they really learn more from our behavior than from what we say so yeah if you're doing the work to heal prioritize the healing for yourself and that will be more impactful than just trying to work on your kids 100% that's a that's a really good thing. I I need to get into deep breathing. I've been thinking that's like because that's a that's a fantastic modality. It's so simple. It's one hundred percent free. It's really easy to do, and it, and it helps tremendously. And I I think about my mom and, and my dad and, and my grandparents and great grandparents and like just it, we just live in such an amazing time. And there's just so many tools available to us that our ancestors did not have. And so I think that by us doing the work to heal and by using these tools, this is one way in which we honor them. Because I know like that scripture is used against us, honor your father and mother. I don't think making them feel good all the time is what that means. It truly honoring my mom and dad is by healing and doing the work, taking advantage of the tools that are available to me, continuing on the legacy of healing and being available for a healthy relationship if that's what they choose later on by doing my side of the work. I, I think that honors them tremendously. You know, I, I feel so happy for myself that I am in such a peaceful, loving place with how I feel about my, my family. It, take, it took me years to get to this place, but I'm genuinely there. At the end of my mom's life, I, I didn't cut her out. Uh, that was not my way uh, that I chose. I knew it was available to me, but for my own reasons, I was like, I don't, I don't need to cut her out completely. But what I did do is I, I cut out our emotional codependency of a relationship. And so, so in other words, like she would, if she were alive, she would probably say like, you know, Laura and I had a superficial relationship towards the end. You know, we really didn't talk about all the things we used to talk about. We didn't relate to each other in the same way. And that was not fun for her. I know she did not appreciate that, but I had to cut that kind of relationship off for, off for myself because, you know, I was just, I was pretending, I was people pleasing, I was way too involved. I, you know, it was, it was hurting me. And 
I mean, weird stuff happened toward the end of my mom's life. Um, but ultimately, our relationship was as superficial as possible on my end. And in fact, the last time I talked to her, I, I set a boundary with myself with her because I noticed myself getting sucked in again to try to solve all her problems and make myself, you know, all those things. And uh, I decided I wasn't going to talk to her on the phone for two weeks. That was like, I'm just going to give myself a two-week break. I'll text her. I'll be in touch that way, but not, not, not fo- phone, not FaceTime. And it was not a week later that she passed away uh, by suicide. And so that was an interesting thing that happened to me where I was like, part of my brain was like, why did you set that boundary? That was terrible. You should have called her every day. You should have been available for her, you know, all these things. And that part of my brain, of course, is trying to protect me from all the grief that I was feeling and trying to make me feel like this is how you could have been a better daughter, you know, all those things. And it's just not real. It's just not true. You know, there's nothing I could have done to change that outcome not really and even if I it even if I could have right it's it's not my job to constantly be emotionally available for my mom in a way that hurts me emotionally makes it so that I'm not available for my family so that you know she doesn't make choices like that like it's it's just not our job to change our parents choices even if that means we have to suffer a lot of grief and I did it was over a year and a half ago that that happened when I've been in therapy for the entire time. <laughs> it's um, so yeah. If, if you're healing from narcissistic relationship, I highly recommend therapy and coaching. Hire both, please. You need all the help you can get. At least I did. Uh, anyway, I'm going off on a tangent now. I don't remember what our original topic was, but those are a lot of lessons I've learned for sure. Honoring yourself. That's what. That's what stood out yes. to me as you're sharing that. That you're not selfish when you honor yourself and place boundaries that keep you safe. Yeah, a lot of times we're accused of being selfish and it's not true. A a narcissist is actually the definition of of selfishness because selfish is about only my needs matter and I am only looking for what's outside of me to fill my needs. Setting appropriate boundaries is about saying, okay, my needs do matter, I'm gonna take care of my needs but I'm not going to use other people to manage my needs. I'm going to take care of my needs myself. That's not selfish. It feels selfish because of the, to the narcissist because when you set a boundary with them, they feel a lot of loss. They feel grief. They feel rejected. And so they're going to use whatever is at their disposal. Oh, she's just being selfish. I'm going to call her selfish so that she feels guilty so that she changes her mind about this boundary. That's really what it's all about. It's not actual selfishness. They don't know what that actually means. They don't understand the word selfish, but they're using it because they're like, ooh, I can like leverage over here some guilt and that's going to change the result for me. And it's anytime a narcissist ever calls you anything, number one, an accusation is always a confession, just bar none. If they're calling you selfish, it's because they're being selfish. If they're accusing you of cheating on them, it's likely they're cheating on you, right? Like just in my experience, that's been the case. And number two, whatever they're accusing you of, whatever judgment they're placing on you, isn't actually the thing. It's just a button they're trying to push to manipulate an emotion so that you change something so that they feel better. It's it's just a tool of leverage. So if you're ever insulted or accused of something by the narcissist, you never have to take it seriously, even if it seems true. Don't. <laughs> and stay calm because yes. they, they want us yes. to have an emotional reaction and it's mm-hmm. hard for us to make rational decisions when we're emotional. So staying calm when they're yes. accusing us of all these things, super helpful. Yep. Amen. Yes. Laura, you are amazing. I am so glad we were finally able to do this. Could you share you with too. our listeners real quick how they can connect with you? Yes. So my website is laurabytheway.com. I am proud to announce my brand new podcast. It's called Post Narc Life. And so you can find the podcast, listen there. And in the show notes, there'll be all kinds of ways to get in touch with me. Ways to get, I have an email list you can sign up for. I don't know when this episode is publishing, but the first week of August, I'm doing a live coaching event where you can come and 
get some free coaching. It's going to be really great. You can register. I'm also on Instagram at Laura, by the way. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Laura, for talking with me today. I learned so much as well. Same. It's such a pleasure to talk with someone who gets it. Hey friend, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you love. For married women who have narcissistic parents, I have a Facebook community just for you. It is a safe space to learn about narcissism and heal and support fellow cycle breakers. The link for it is in this episode's description. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.